Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Fowl Front Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit, educate, and inspire new hunters and to entertain the rest of you. Without the mentorship of responsible, conservation-minded hunters, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So please stick around and be sure to check out our Facebook group, Fowl Front Waterfowl Podcast, and like our main page at Fowl Front Outdoors right after this episode. Welcome to the second episode of Green Wing Waterfowl Podcast. Today we're going to be covering uh, waterfowl and waterfowl behavior. Uh, once again, I'm Ben. And I'm Austin. And uh, today we're going to cover the different types of ducks, uh, geese. Then we're going to move into the migration. And then some of the external factors that influence waterfowl and behavior. So let's just hop right into it and we're going to talk about divers versus dabblers and then we'll get into some of the geese as well yeah ben awesome sounds like we've got a great episode planned okay so let's start off with the dabblers so you've heard different mentions of divers and dabblers different kinds of ducks before i'm sure and there's essentially two camps that a duck falls into there's dabblers uh, which are also called puddle ducks and then there's divers which are called diver ducks um, dabblers have large wings and body sizes. Um, their legs are central underneath of their body. They have colorful speculums, which is the colors on their wings. It, excuse me. They take off from the water going straight up. Uh, they generally sit a little bit higher in the water than diver ducks and their body is more horizontal. They can feed on land, and they generally feed by upending themselves in shallow water, which is why they call them puddle ducks. Puddle ducks generally consist of mallards, black ducks, mottled ducks, pintails, gadwall widgeon, shovelers, uh, woodies, and then all of the teal, uh, both green, blue wing, and cinnamon. Uh, also includes uh, wood ducks. Austin, you want to handle the divers? Yeah, for sure. So then we've got diver ducks. Um, diver ducks have a smaller wing um, and body size. Their legs are to the rear of their body, and they look less colorful. They sit much lower in the water. When they take off, they kind of run on the water. Uh, you may have seen this with, like, coots. 
and they dive for their food. They have a, a quick wing speed. Diver ducks consist of canvas back, redhead, scop, or bluebill, ringneck, bufflehead, golden eye, and then the ruddy duck. And then we've got uh, geese we can talk about as well. Yeah. So you've got Canadian geese, right? Is that what they're called? Yeah, the Canadas. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, you, you'll probably get made fun of by people if you call it Canadian geese. I always tell people, like, yeah, they don't have passports, so they're, they're Canada geese, not Canadian. But that's just a stupid – okay, moving on. Yep, so then with Canada geese, uh, you also see snow geese. Snow geese primarily flying around uh, heavily in the fall, and you see those a little higher altitude than the uh, Canada geese. And then within those snow geese flights – usually have specs in both blues. Okay, so next week or in a couple weeks, we're going to cover waterfowl species a little bit more in depth and then how to actually identify each species. We just wanted to give a general um, brush over on the different types of ducks and waterfowl. And then next, I think it's important before you hunt these birds to understand their migration patterns and some of their behavior. So good segue into that. We'll go ahead. Yeah, Ben, and the uh, migration is a good talking point. Uh, I did a lot of research the last couple of days uh, just simply on uh, ducks.org with uh, Ducks Unlimited. So you can get a lot of good facts here. And I think a lot of the stuff that we'll talk about is uh, easily found on websites uh, such as Ducks Unlimited. Um, and each of our talking points uh, are going to tie in uh, with the migration and the general understanding of how that works and how to tie that into hunting. Okay, so I guess let's start with we all know that in the fall, ducks begin moving south. Um, can you speak to a little bit why they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the time when you see large flocks of ducks uh, vacate local ponds and lakes, and then they begin their flight southward. Uh, basically, the ducks have started to sense a key change in their environment. Yeah, so that, that happens through sunlight. Um, we know in the fall, the days start getting a little bit shorter. The weather gets a little bit colder, um, and then obviously um, winter hits harder north first, and then you start getting snow covering up food sources and then water locking up north, so they begin to move south. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing when this migration really begins is 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 the sunlight, if we start with that. So ducks migration, it definitely starts to be driven by the relative length of day and night within a 24-hour period. So as a result, migration is physiologically hardwired, you could say, in waterfowl and other migratory birds. This begins as early as the spring. Uh, ducks' internal clock really begins ticking due to an increasing day length, which is going to affect their hormone response and is going to get them moving uh, to begin that southward flight. Yeah. So I think that's a good segue into um, blue-winged teal. They're generally the first ducks to head south, and they don't attribute it uh, – scientists don't attribute it to – the weather or food shortages or anything like that is it's strictly blue winged teal um, move south because of the shortened day. Yeah, and really when we look at blue winged teal, they're migrating from this prairie pothole region to the wintering areas in uh, Florida and the Caribbean islands, the, both the Gulf Coast of Texas, Louisiana, uh, Mexico, Central, and South America. Uh, for blue winged teal, their wintering habitats are diverse, including mangrove swamps. Uh, fresh and brackish estuaries, and then shallow wetlands. Yeah, I think it's uh, a good a good segue here. So you've seen, if you've looked up when waterfowl season begins, you've seen that in September there's generally a September teal season. That's because these blue wing teal and the green wings too, um, 
they begin migrating before all the other ducks. So if we didn't have that special season to hit them in September when they're migrating, a lot of the northern and central states wouldn't even see blue wing or green wing teal. Um, so that's that's generally how it starts. It starts with the teal. Um, then it moves into the regular ducks. Uh, you know, you got your mallards, your widgeon, all that stuff. The hardiest birds of them all, probably the late movers, are going to be your mallards. Probably won't see those in strength. Uh, until halfway through the season generally that's my observation at least yeah and i agree and mallards in general with big ducks like black ducks uh, they have one of the most extensive breeding ranges of any duck in north america it extends across the northern third of the united states up towards the bering sea the highest mallard densities occur also up in the prairie pothole regions of saskatchewan uh, alberta manitoba and then both north and south dakota so mallards have the most extended migration period, which lasts from the late summer all the way to the early winter. Uh, we really just think of it, though, of you know the hunting season. When's the opening day of duck season and then the last day of duck season? But ultimately, they really do begin this migration late summer and then into early winter. Uh, mallards are found in a variety of habitats, including dry agricultural fields, shallow marshes, and then oak-dominated forest wetlands. Right, right. And I think it's important to also mention there are some birds – um, mostly geese, I think, Canada geese, that don't actually migrate at all. Correct. Yep. <laughs> and they, they end up calling those resident birds. For whatever reason, they found their own little honey hole where they can hang out and be safe, relatively warm, uh, with plenty of food, and they just end up not migrating. So if you're seeing ducks when there's uh, supposedly the entire migration is, is supposed to have been past you already, that's more than likely what those birds are doing, hanging out. Yeah, and, and there's a good contrast between resident birds and then migratory birds. So migrant waterfowl expend a considerable amount of energy flying long distances to and from their breeding grounds in their winter, wintering areas. These resident, resident waterfowl eliminate the energy demands by staying put year-round. Uh, the trade-off is that these birds have less flexibility in finding breeding sites, avoiding local predators, and responding to changing food availability and habitat conditions. So when the going gets tough, uh, migratory waterfowl just simply fly to areas where habitat's more favorable, while these resident species such as Canada geese uh, and even some mallards, you'll see, uh, they just make do with what they have in their local area. Right, like hole number nine on the golf course. Exactly. Um, So that's a pretty good segue into what I was going to say next, is that bottom line up front, all the species and you know, subspecies of duck have different migrating, uh, habits and that'll, uh, we'll just, we'll go ahead and we'll put a cap on that for now. Um, and so we know now that it is the fall and birds are starting to move through. Um, and as they're moving down South to their wintering grounds, they begin pairing up early on. It's like a free for all when you're out there, you know, uh, everybody's dating, everybody's, you know, just got to the bar trying to figure out who they're going to who they're going to be hooking up with. And then as the season progresses, you start seeing pairs. They start pairing off. Uh, geese actually form family units that they're a little bit more monogamous than ducks are, I would say. it's a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, ducks are polygamous. Every year they choose a new partner um, to go ahead and you know copulate with. Whereas uh, geese... They tend to mate for life until, you know, some sort of drastic 
influence like us hunting them <laughs> happens and then they have to uh, restart. So that moves us into the you know point they've moved through they've it's the hunting season and now they're getting to their wintering grounds way south. Typically a mallard can fly from like 4 to 600 miles a day in yep. one go. In fact, there's some pintails that make it all the way from like the Aleutian Islands all the way to I think Hawaii or something like that uh, in one go. But a lot of times what they'll do is they'll make a big push with the weather and then they'll get to a, a good safe spot that's still temperate enough for them and then they'll hang out, they'll store up and get, you know, rested up until it's time for their next push down south. Yeah, and, and with talking about the distance, you know, one of the things, Ben, that I've kind of looked at in research a little bit is pretty phenomenal to see how far some of these ducks can move uh, within one day and then especially one week. You know, so some of the ducks that we're hunting are just some of the later ducks of some of the movements because there are ducks that have made their way from like North and South Dakota, you know, all the way down to the Gulf in, in Mexico, really, within a, within a week's time. And we may never even see those ducks during the hunting season. Right, right. That's a good point. So once they get to their wintering ground, they hang out, they fatten up, they're, you know, basically on vacation. They're all pretty much paired up by now. And then it starts getting to be winter down south. And the days start getting shorter up there. And boom, now it's time to head north with their brand new bow or, you know, uh, lady friend. So like I said, ducks versus geese. Ducks, seasonal bonds. Geese, monogamous, and try to mate for life. So as they're heading back up north for the spring migration, the north migration, uh, they're heading back to their breeding grounds where they are then going to be fertilized and lay their eggs. Um, Ducks, for the most part, the males will defend their female, uh, mostly from other males, not so much predators. But once the eggs are laid, uh, ducks are out. However, the geese uh, males will stick around to help protect uh, the egg brood. Yeah, and this is pretty cool because some bird species uh, will actually breed and lay eggs where they're born themselves, or at least where they've done it successfully in the past. I don't know if you have any specific examples or of those species. I don't know if that more particular in geese or ducks that you found. Um, I I, th- I think it's both. Um, I know for sure for certain ducks, uh, it's definitely that way. They their their navigation during the migration is astonishing. Their their ability to remember where they were born and hatched or where they've successfully hatched. I think I just saw on Facebook yesterday, there was, there's a, a mallard hen that comes back every year to lay her eggs in the courtyard of a school. Um, and then obviously her, her brood does as well every year they're, they're, they're there and they march them through the hallway. It was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. And you know, that's a good point because I do remember as a kid, so my grandparents lived at the Lake of the Ozarks. It seemed like every single, uh, seemed like every spring that we would see the same hen hen mallard, you know, laying her eggs um, in the exact same bush on the exact same part of the uh, walkway down by my grandpa's boat. So there, there's a good chance uh, that that's pretty common. Yeah, absolutely. So if if you're thinking about this, these ducks are navigating thousands of miles. These these geese are navigating thousands of miles and remembering stream beds, remembering mountains prominent buildings your house to navigate off of imagine what happens when they get shot at over the same looking spread all the time these aren't stupid birds um they i mean they might start off that way but they get they get educated they can remember things yeah absolutely i think one thing 
to kind of look at some of the stuff that I've done reading through Ducks Unlimited and uh, their website and some of the magazines that I get monthly. You know, ducks and geese follow these ancient pathways from their breeding grounds to their wintering areas. Uh, banding research has helped to sort of prove that waterfowl, which has helped waterfowl managers map uh, the major migration corridors followed by both ducks and geese, uh, which are known today as the flyaways. So for management purposes, to the most common knowledge, uh, North America is divided into these four flyaways. So we have the Atlantic, uh, the Mississippi flyaway, the Central flyaway, and then the Pacific flyaway. Yeah, yeah. All right, so back on track. You know, uh, we're back up. It's, you know, mid-spring, early summer. We're up north now. Um, we're ducks, by the way, and the, the young have hatched. Um, it's summer, and they're ready for flight, uh, the flight south in the fall. So imagine that. You're, you're born in May, and then you're ready to fly thousands of miles in September, November. You know what I mean? All right. So that kind of uh, reaches the end of the, you know, yearly cycle, you know. You head down south, you're dating, trying to find a lady. Then you hang out with her all day, you know, vacationing in, in the south where it's real nice. And then once the weather gets bad down there, hey, let's head back up north, rent, uh, head back to the house and make some babies. And then we can take those babies down south again. Yeah, so. that's a good way to put it. Uh, I guess we could look at then what, you know, what's the typical day. So we're looking at the typical day between a dabbler duck, so talking our mallards and our big ducks, versus a diver duck, and then versus geese. So when we look at the mallards and other dabbler ducks, uh, they're starting out on the water, they're roosted. Uh, post that is the uh, physical training or warm-up, uh, you could say, which is a flight uh, 30 minutes to either side of sunrise. Then they've got their flight for food, which is about 45 minutes to two hours after they... So essentially... What happens, like you said, they wake up and then it's time to do their flight, a uh, little training. Um, and that's when we see them mostly, you know, because we're out there in the blind 30 minutes uh, before sunrise, legal shooting start, you know, time starts. And then the birds are coming in and they're just moving around, getting warmed up for the day. You know, they've been, they're freezing at night and they're just trying to, to wake up, spread the wings. And then like Austin was saying, then they head to food after that. Um, and they could feed either on land or in small shallow ponds, wherever the food's at. And that usually lasts, you know, about 45 minutes to two hours. And I mean, it just all depends on food availability and their nutritional needs, which we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later when we start talking about external factors. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, for mallards, it seems like they can feed just about anywhere. I've seen a mallard hang out, you know, out in a, out in a cornfield on my friend's farm before for definitely two hours, maybe even three hours. And then, on the contrary, it seems like they're coming and they're finding their food on, on the top of water, depending on what kind of vegetation you've got floating on top of water. So it, yeah. it can definitely vary. Yeah. So after breakfast, I guess we'll call that breakfast. Um, you know, you probably call this, let's say it's either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m., you know, by the time they're done feeding. Then they're going to they're gonna go loaf, which loafing is essentially, you know, napping, drinking water, preening, which um, – Talk about preening. Ducks have to take care of their feathers because that's you know they got to do their preventative maintenance on their on their feathers so that they can have a healthy uh, flight. Which they basically they pull a feather out that's it's not good anymore, and that feather will grow back pretty quick. Um, but yeah, so that's loafing. They're just hanging out, napping, drinking, taking care of their feathers, uh, basically just chilling out. 
and they they'll usually you know loaf all day on water, and then as eventually they'll they'll go fly to the roost, which is around sunset. I haven't had a lot of success hunting you know afternoon flights, but that's just because I'm not near ag fields when it's super cold. Yeah, I think I think that makes a big difference, and then it just depends on how early those ducks want to sit down. Uh, one thing you know we've kind of got down here to talk about is is the night roost or migration, and I don't really know what this is tied into from from your experience, but I definitely whether it's big ducks or I think geese more commonly, but I've definitely seen ducks, especially during the migration, flying at night. Uh, something kind of interesting. Uh, my parents used to live up in northern Missouri, about an hour north of Kansas City, and uh, we lived up by Smithville Lake, and I, I would go out between like 9 or 10 o'clock at night sometimes to take care of our, our horses out of my parents' land, and I know for a fact uh, multiple times I saw ducks flying over 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and it seemed like the the oddest thing to me to see ducks flying that late at night, but they definitely do, and if they've got to get somewhere during the migration uh, I would say that it's a possibility you can hear those wings whistling and a couple little quacks from ducks even at 9 or 10 o'clock. Yeah, and I've always heard that a good portion of the migration happens at night. I mean, obviously, you're going to see ducks flying south all the time. <laughs> but yeah. um, I think a good percentage of them actually at night, you know what I mean? And that's a funny thing. You know, we we talked about ducks and all that stuff, and I've never seen a coot fly. <laughs> um but that was what really like brought it out to me. They say, "Yeah, I've, the coots migrate," but I never see them. I never see them like put in. I would just see them running on the water, or swimming in, and they're pretty uh, they're pretty heavy night migrators. Yeah, you know. And then the contrary, you've got the diver duck, uh, where the diver ducks were really going to have more open water roost in these uh, huge rafts, and then they've got a shorter flight span. Uh, usually, they're swimming around for food between like eight and eleven a.m. And then they'll link back up to uh, loaf and roost after that. Yeah, so that's a good point. So dabblers, you know, they try to find, you know, a good, safe spot. And I would never encourage anyone to hunt ducks, local ducks, on the roost because it kind of ruins it for everybody because then you just eventually drive those birds out of there because they don't feel safe anywhere. Um Hit them in the kitchen, hit them in the living room, but don't hit them in the bedroom. I, I think uh, they got to have some place to go, otherwise they'll they'll completely bug out. Yeah, that's good. That's a good way to understand, you know, waterfowl and their behavior and how you can tie that in for a successful hunt. Yeah. So I guess we'll talk about geese. Geese vary a little bit um, when it comes to ducks. They wake up with the sun. I've, I've generally found I, I you see them. They're, they're a little bit hardier, heavier birds. So. They can hang out and be a little they're, – they're not as cold as ducks are. But once they wake up, they generally head to food within like 10 to 15 miles from wherever they roosted. And they end up eating for an hour more or less um, in some ag field generally. And then after they're done with breakfast there, they, they head to water. It, I mean if the roost is close, they'll head back to their roost. But if not, they generally find some sort of suitable water to, to drink and hang out and – low fall day and then after that they generally head to food again so you can generally duck feed or excuse me geese feed like twice a day yeah you know geese a goose's pattern is is pretty interesting uh geese in my opinion seem a a little more lazy uh, than the ducks do the ducks you'll see them flying around and they seem like they're out there what are the girls doing oh is that that's artillery oh wow that is yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, I thought my kid was jumping on your table. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So what I was going to geese, geese are generally, like Ben said, you know, waking up with the sun, a, in my opinion, a little lazier of a waterfowl uh, because they're, they're bigger birds and they can fly a little longer distance to get to the food that they need to get to and then back to their roost. Um, so geese definitely have a little bit different of a pattern than ducks, and I, I don't think you're going to see the geese coming over at first light like you will see a duck, especially a diver, a duck, or a dabbler. Yeah, I think the the that that's pretty good for understanding their their behavior and uh, the migration patterns. I can't tell you how many times I have to reassure you know people like they're like, hey Ben, where where are the ducks at? I said, oh, well, they're in the field right now. We didn't hunt the field; we're hunting the water. They're going to come back. Don't worry. Um, that's a running joke. Anytime someone says, ah man, it's kind of a slow day, someone's like, yeah, I bet they're in the field. But anyways, so. Now we've talked about all of the behavior, the migration. Everything that we told you there does not occur in a vacuum. These are the external influences that can change those things that we just previously talked about. Yeah, and I think the first thing to talk about that's pretty good is temperature. So when it's warm, there's a smaller uh, caloric intake needed for food other than putting on fat. So like you are saying, there's a smaller caloric need. Um, and then waterfowl are going to utilize food sources that are – Lower caloric density, like aquatic vegetation and grass seed. Um, they're also more prone to feeding at night because it's not brutally cold. They don't have to hang out there and just try to conserve their their energy. And I mean, we've all been cold. We want to just kind of like tuck up and yeah, you know. Um, and then they have an abundance of extra or unspent energy from the day from not having to keep themselves warm. So they kind of switch over to be a little bit more. What's that word? At night, feeding at night. Nocturnal. Uh, yeah, there you yeah. go. They're, they're a little bit more nocturnal when it's uh, when it's warmer. Yeah. Sorry, my internal thesaurus is, is lacking. <laughs> so yeah. So that's warm. And then if we're talking about uh, cold, so once the temperature starts to drop and that caloric intake goes up to keep them warm, uh, they're going to stop feeding at night to conserve energy. Uh, but they may feed twice a day, once in the morning and then once in the evening. So with the colder weather, it's more likely that they're going to move more during the day, and then generally. Uh, they've got to find open sources of water, such as streams, in the middle of large bodies of water, uh, which can be difficult for them to find. So too hot, and they're usually pretty stale during the day. But once you start to get into those colder temperatures, at least in my experience, it usually makes for a pretty good hunt. Yeah, I, I like hunting the super cold days because I know that they're going to be moving a lot, just generally because they were stuck huddling up all night. They have a high caloric need, so they're going to hit food. They're going to hit food twice that day. And generally, if you create open water or if you find open water, they're going to be concentrated there. So do you have any final notes on, on temperature? No, my only thing would be, you know, we talked about there being better hunts in the cold versus the warm. But I tell you what, there's been some really warm, like, bluebird days where I was extremely amazed that we limited out with ducks. So I don't put it past ducks to come in and land in your decoys on a nice warm day because I've limited out in ducks and you know, 66 degree weather before. That's true. Especially like during teal season in September, you know, they, they hit hard in the morning cause that's about the only time they move. And so you can have them, you know, smoked generally pretty quickly. All right. So let's transition into wind. Yeah, this is a good topic. I think from the most basic uh, understanding of how to set up your decoys and then just how to understand ducks uh, this was probably one of the first things that I remember, you know, my dad teach my brother and I. Birds land into the wind. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we need to know 
that birds have to land into the wind to avoid crashing and injuring themselves. Uh, why we hunt? This is why we hunt with the wind at our back and to our sides uh, to present those nice uh, frontal shots with the birds. Yeah, coming into the wind I'll say that too. Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, birds land into the wind, so we generally want the, the wind at our back, so they're coming straight into us. That's a nice, easy shot. But you can put the wind to the left or the right of you, you know, so it's blowing across your cheek. And uh, I just want to say one little note: if you're going to do that, you have to remember how birds um, see. <laughs> they're they're Eyes are on the side of their head. And so when you're in front of them, you're kind of in their blind spot. And if you've ever noticed a like a goose coming in, it's constantly waving its head back and forth. It's because they don't see that well two-dimensional or three-dimensionally with the eyes on either side of their head. So they have to wiggle their head back and forth so they can get a, uh, a good distance judgment. Uh-oh. But yeah, just, just keep note of that is when you are hunting them from left to right, you are right in their line of sight. And so camo is essential there. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, I would say that's 99% of the birds, but I think you've got a little different experience with teal. I think you've done more teal hunting than I have because you're lucky enough to get out in the early season. I I mean, are teal always landing into the wind? Oh yeah. So that's, that's one thing is, is (laughs) uh, my general rule of thumb is wind speed matters just as much as wind direction does anything under eight miles an hour. A, a duck is just going to land however they want. Yeah, uh, at least in my observation, and I know that seems like, oh, really, eight miles an hour? Well, I I spent all last season <laughs> collecting those metrics. You know, ten miles an hour, they still landed it like into the wind, but you know, seven miles an hour, they're just coming in however they want. Um, but teal, they'll just drop in whichever direction. I, I you know, they they're so agile that they just flip you know, fly in and they, they, they take whatever banks they need to, to put down on the water. Yeah. And I've seen that once or twice and that's a pretty cool sight to see, you know, they just cut those wings and they cut right through the wind and it really doesn't matter what direction it's going. Yeah. So I think the bigger the bird, the more it depends on the wind direction to get into your spread. Yeah. But there's also times when the wind can be, uh, yeah. So like if the wind is really whipping out there, they're going to loaf into the protected area. So I love a windy day. Like a super windy day is awesome because what's going to happen is, is they're going to find shelter and they're going to find it. They're going to wind up into these little fingers um, back in the, the bays or the coves and stuff like that. And they're going to be constantly having to move with, because the wind is never coming from just one direction, you know? And so when that wind changes, they have to find a different sort of uh, protection from it. And generally, they're just going to move. They're going to move all day with it um, because it's pushing them around. You know, if they're out on the, the big water out in the open, they're they're going to get pushed. That's not where they're going to be because the wind put them there. So they're going to hop back over to the other side of the lake. And so I, I find, you know, so far, you know, I've said I like hunting cold and I like hunting wind. So I like hunting cold, windy days. Uh, another thing that comes along with that wind is that especially if it's shifting a lot if you put yourself kind of in an area that is protected has multiple protected areas like right next to it when the wind is whipping one way they're gonna be hanging out there because they're gonna want to be on the lee side of that whatever that shelter is and then when the wind starts whipping the other way they're gonna head back to the other side so if you can put yourself in between those two things you can get some good passing shots um, or you can just hit them when they're trying to come on in to seek shelter. 
Yeah, and you know, I'll be honest, Ben. I'm not the I'm not the most expert waterfowl hunter. However, I I do know anytime I've gone out and it's windy and it's cold, it's generally going to be a pretty good day. Yeah, so, I agree. And another thing, I know we haven't touched on calling with you guys yet, but on super windy days, there's a couple of things you have to remember. Um, even on a calm day, when a duck or a goose is flying, you know, 30 to 50 miles an hour, um, they have wind rushing past their ears at 30 to 50 miles an hour. Well, you add wind into that too, carrying your calls, it's kind of, it's difficult to reach out and um, talk to those ducks and those geese. So on windy days, it's a lot more important to be visually appealing than it is to be calling. Whereas uh, maybe on a not windy day, you have to focus a little bit more on your calls and then really just bringing them in with um, the loud out way out far away and then bringing them in closer with your um, a little bit mellow tone. Yeah, and I think the nice thing about the wind, though, is that's kind of Mother Nature's way of, of helping you out, especially in your decoy spread. So if you're not that great of a caller like myself and all two dozen or three dozen of your decoys are moving around and it looks like a bunch of little ducks enjoying breakfast, that's going to help bring the ducks in. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, too. You get the natural motion in there. Um, so let's transition from the wind now that we've established that we like cold, windy days. Um, let's move into precipitation. You want to talk a little bit about heavy rain? Yep. So looking at heavy rain, uh, if it's if it's heavy, uh, you want to hope that there's intermittent ducks that are going to move like crazy uh, before and after, uh, but not so much during it uh, if it's if it's a sustained heavy rain. So we're really hoping when we kind of talked about some of those like key triggers during migration, uh, ducks kind of have the same thing with weather too. So if they know a heavy rain's coming in. Uh, you're really hoping that ducks are getting up and jumping off either one plot of water or one plot of land to move over to the next, uh, and that you're going to catch those ducks wanting to get into your hole before that rain picks up. Yeah, they can sense that rain's coming. Yeah, and absolutely. So they'll start they'll start moving really hard right before the rain, and then dies down during the rain. But then right after it, you know, maybe they didn't get to where they wanted to be before the rain. So then they they put down really quick. Now they got to get up and go to where they wanted to be. So. Yeah. And yeah, so like that. So I don't generally like a light, steady rain because it seems to have relatively little effect on ducks other than it has like limited visibility for them. So like a light and steady rain doesn't affect the ducks day that much. And it's a little bit more difficult to pattern and they can't see your decoys as much. Though, to be honest, I have seen a spike in activity right after a light rain starts. More than likely just because ducks who can't see that well are trying to get out of the sky and trying to put down. At least that's what I surmise. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, so you've got you've got heavy rain or light and steady rain. And then, honestly, my favorite time to hunt, though, is, is during the snow. Yeah. Um, I've watched <laughs> plenty of guys' YouTube videos where they've got these great shots of a duck with its wings cupped and it's coming in and the snow's coming down, you know, like two to three inches of snow that day. And you've just got these big like half dollar size snowflakes. Um, and that's, those have been some of my most fun duck hunts where I can remember as a kid, like having to use an ax. We used like an actual ax to cut a hole in the ice because the water was so frozen and the snow was just coming down. And this is just in central Missouri. So I can only imagine what it's like up in Northern, uh, South Dakota and North Dakota, but right. the snow really drives birds into a frenzy. Uh, it's covering their food. Uh, the train landscape changes. I think that's a huge part of it is yeah. you're, you know, 
you're a duck, you're a goose, and you're used to seeing you yep. know um, the ground. But then all of a sudden, it gets blanketed by this white thing. It, you don't obviously now you're not recognizing things as much. Now you're stressed out, and you're just trying to find something that's familiar or something that looks like food, and uh, it limits visibility, which is both good and bad. So they'll readily you know decoy. Um, so being verbal is super critical during snow. Especially um, if it's not that windy, you know, be, be as loud as you can. Get them to your decoy spread. They'll see. They'll see just you know your little blobs down there, and uh, they'll they'll dive bomb in because they're just trying to get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then that snow, you know, if you're landing a layout blind, that snow can help conceal you, uh, especially if it's a heavy snow. But at the same time, too, if ducks are flying at a further distance and there is a heavy snow. Uh, it's also going to conceal you in a, a disadvantageous way. Uh, so right, there's there right. are some bads about it. If the ducks can't hear you or your calling is not convincing them uh, and then they can't see you, there's a good chance they could still fly by. Right, and never even know you were there and you'd never even know they were there other than a, a random honk or quack out in the distance. That, that also, though, kind of uh, reminds me of snow to, or, excuse me, of fog as well. Right. Um, so fog pretty much is the same thing. It limits your their visibility. So you have to be super vocal with them, and then when they come in, I mean, it's pretty cool shooting a a goose or a duck that comes straight out of the fog wall, and then you don't even have to be that well concealed up because they they find your birds. Um, Excuse me, don't don't take that take that with a a whole pound of salt. There still can still stay concealed, but um, they come in, they see your uh, your decoys, and a lot of times, you know, I've I've in that fog, I've just been sitting up out of my out of my blind and just coming in. Oh crap. We both see each other at the same time. He's in range done. You know what I mean? It, it's pretty fun and pretty exciting. Cause you can hear them coming towards you. You're talking to them, but they just pop out, you know, 30 yards in front of you. And it's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. And that, and that fog and snow dulls the visibility too. you know, when it's a, a blue sunny day or there's really no precipitation, there's a lot of reflections, you know, you'd be surprised between your cheeks or maybe something you didn't camo up well enough or spray paint well enough on your blind that's going to reflect and that ducks are going to see. And when you've got the heavy precipitation or a thick fog like that, it's really going to make that stuff a lot more dense and and just plain dull. So a duck's not going to see those and that's going to help bring them in a little bit closer. Look at you. That was an excellent segue into cloud cover. (laughs) So cloud cover generally, you know, it's tied to bad weather and storms um, and precipitation. So it does add a little bit of stress to the birds, which is nice because, you know, the more stressed out they are, the easier they are to hunt, I think. And another thing, like Austin was just saying, it hides the shadows and makes contrast vision harder. So that's always nice that you don't have to worry about your, your barrel shining when it's sticking out of your blind. Even if it's a bluebird day, the cloudier the better. Even if there's just, you know, a few clouds up there. The shine and the glare that are super obvious to ducks because they've got UV vision. They see on a different spectrum than we do. So anything that shines really pops out and almost is like a strobe light to them. You want to transition us? Do uh, you have any alibis on that? No. I mean, I no, I concur. You know, everything with the cloud cover I think is, is very accurate because it, that honestly helps me. I, I think sometimes I've been a little bit lazy to cover myself up, you know, specifically my face. And some of my my camoing of my layout blinds, as I've learned after going out hunting with you. And so when Mother Nature can help me out, 
with the bad the bad rain, the heavy rain, the heavy snow, or the cloud cover, um, I I definitely will take advantage of that. Right, right. So one thing I guess we probably should have led with this, but air pressure, right? Yeah. So people often say, you know, the best time to be duck hunting is when the weather is the worst. Literally, people will be like, ah, oh, this is such a crappy day. A duck hunter's like, yeah, this is a great day. However, we've also have had some phenomenal hunting right before it gets bad. Um, that's most likely because the birds, much like other animals such as deer, I mean, you've been deer hunting right before a storm comes in, everything's going crazy. Yep. Um, and like my dog, Elsa, you know, she can sense that it's about to hit the fan, you know, thunder and stuff wise, and she gets under the bed, you know, she, she knows that stuff too. But pressure is just a great indicator to get out there and start hunting. When you got a low pressure system moving in, like, you know that it's about to get, you know, the weather's about to get ripe for duck hunting. Let's, uh, moon, I, get some, talk about the moon, I guess. Yeah, we'll kind of go into the, the moon and high visibility nights. Uh, especially when moonrise or moonset is near feeding times, it can push either an early feed or late feed, uh, moving that critical event outside of your shooting time. Uh, you can probably elaborate on that a little bit more. Okay, yeah. So generally, I, I I think it's best to have a moonless night, like a dark night when they can't see as much and they might take the opportunity to, okay, hey, if the moon is, is up and it's 3 in the morning, hey, let's go feed now. Let's Let's get up and let's go feed now. As opposed to when we're out there hunting, because you know we can't hunt them at three, so uh, I think that's generally attributable. So yeah, and the thing is, I guess kind of the next transition. There are a lot of factors with the weather and how waterfowl are going to behave. Uh, but what I would call maybe that variable X is is the other hunters out there and the hunting pressure. Uh, there are a lot of things to think about when you're out hunting, and, and you can plan a perfect hunt you can study the weather you can study the light data and you know you can understand what direction the wind is blowing uh but if you and i are out hunting especially on public land in the in the same hole and we're i guess maximizing that right to hunt in some of these public areas it's like 400 meters apart you have to right. be minimum 400 meters that's going to completely change the game in my opinion yeah so i think a lot of times people look at hunting pressure as this negative thing. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be that way. In fact, there's Tuesdays where I know that I'm going to be the, you know, I go out there before um, work or something, and I, I'm the only guy out there. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, like I got the whole place to myself. I can choose wherever I want to go. But there's nothing pushing those birds around. They show up. They see my spread. I shoot at them once. Okay, good to go. Trial and error, not going there. You know, I'm not going to go to that guy's that guy's spread anymore. Um, and then ducks start piling up somewhere else, and you can't beat a, a live duck when it comes to decoys. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I was honestly kind of going the opposite direction there with, with the hunting pressure and how it's affected me in a bad way, but you're absolutely correct. If, if you have people out there in multiple spots, you know, within a mile or two around you, uh, then you know, hey, is your calling better and is your spread better? And, and that's going to probably help the ducks come to you. Right. But, I mean, there still is obviously a lot of negative things to be said about too much hunting pressure. Um, too much in a certain area can force them, you know, into refuges where nobody can hunt them. So if they, you know, are getting hit real hard, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna find those spots that 
they're not going to be able to get hit hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another thing it can do, it can also turn them nocturnal. There's that word again that we were looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. If they know that they're getting hammered in this certain area uh, every morning, then they're going to not do that. They're going to they're gonna start feeding at night. Well, and it's like you talked about, though, too, you know, shooting them where they sleep. Um, if, if a duck is pressured enough by enough people, it's going to ultimately probably change where they roost and, and where they feed. Um, so that complete, could completely displace them, you know, more than a couple miles from that area, and, and you may not even see those flights of ducks anymore. Right. I, I remember this last season. I knew that there was a, a roost pond. Um Pretty sizable one. Probably was holding upwards of 300, 400 birds a night. And it was perfect. I was hunting this little, this smaller pond about a mile away from it uh, that was in between some nice ag fields that nobody let, uh, that the farmer didn't let anybody hunt on. So I was just running traffic from uh, that roost to that, that field. And I remember I was just sick to my stomach. I rolled up there. There was a nice front coming through. And uh, I was on my way out to drop off some decoys and, and stuff like that out at the pond so it would be a, an easier setup in the morning. And I saw two pickup trucks parked, you know, 400 yards from the, the roost pond. And I saw them all getting up, getting ready, and they're about to go jump shoot that pond at night. And I just wanted to – oh, it made me sick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so – I. I discourage you unless the birds are about to really move out from the area, you know, the last part of the last, maybe it's like the last time of a last hunt of a split. Yeah. Those birds are not going to be there in two weeks. Go ahead. You can jump the roost. It's cool, but man, don't ruin it for the other people. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, the thing for hunting is, you know, you want to, you want to hunt the entire season and and then you want to come back and, and hunt there next year too. So that one day that may have been fun is not going to be very advantageous for the rest of the season. Yeah, that's that's true. So, um, I guess in summation here, um, I like hunting cold, windy, cloudy, snowy Saturdays when all the other hunters are out. And then, uh, obviously, no moonlight the night before. But you can play with every single one of these variables, though, and... Knowing them and being aware of them can help shape your plan and still result in a, a high success rate. Like Austin was saying, on a you know warm bluebird sunny day, he's he's limited out, and just the the opposite for me too. You know, I mean, I've I've had similar experiences, but now that we we know kind of the different factors that play into what affects a, a duck in in their day. Um, you can start formulating your your plans a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, there's more, there's another X factor that goes into it, and that's you as the hunter. So you could be out there on that perfect cold, windy, cloudy, uh, snowy Saturday when the wife has let you go out for both a morning and evening hunt. Uh, but if, if you can't shoot anything, that could also determine your uh, limited ducks. Uh, so I would just say, you know, that with that, take advantage of any day that you can go out, uh, whether it's that cold, windy, cloudy, snowy day, or it's a bluebird day, because, because you never know, you never know what internal trigger has been flipped that day for the ducks and what's going to bring them into your hole. Right. Generally, the, the more of these factors that are in play, the, the greater your, your, you know, chances of success are. Um, but yeah, 
I think that's all we got for now. We want to talk about a little bit about what we have coming up. Yeah, so next week we'll talk about scouting and then finding land to be able to hunt on. Uh, the week after that's going to be all about decoys, and then we're going to have a call maker on to discuss the different types of calls available and uh, how to call. Uh, so I'll be sure to have my pen and notepad for that to take plenty of notes yeah, to improve here. my calling. Yeah, uh, so next week's episode I'm really, um, really excited about because it's gonna go, it's gonna talk us through digital scouting and then actual you know physically on the ground scouting. One of the the biggest things that's probably the best thing I do I think as a hunter is finding. I might suck at all these other things, but get us onto to huntable land, um, and we're gonna show you how to do that because that's one of the the biggest problems that new hunters have is not knowing where to hunt. Yeah, and I would just say tiny lead in to that episode next week is just think about who you know or maybe who your dad knows or who your uncle knows because especially out in the Midwest, but I guess anywhere, you would be surprised the connections maybe one or two people away from you that, that actually own some land and that don't that don't hunt on that land at all. And you know, with the right introduction and friendly attitude, uh, you could find yourself that little piece of land to hunt on. Absolutely. So now I guess we're gonna head upstairs and um, have dinner with the girls. I'm gonna I'm gonna get this uh, podcast set up, and we'll have it out to you guys by Monday. Yeah, until next week. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste in podcast listening? Me neither, but hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.